Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. So on this episode we have got the opportunity to do something completely different for a change and we have interviewed ex-prison officer Tony Duncan who has also just written a book about all of his experiences in the prison and the reasons what made him become a prison officer and really just the book is about the officer's side of things instead of the prisoner's side of things which is what we hear most often. So have a listen to the interview, give us a Give us your feedback and what you think. And the book is also out now. If you'd like to buy it, it is on Kindle and on paperback for $5.99. I'll link it in our little blurb for this episode. And it is the week before Christmas. So if you're wanting to give a true crime lover a wee present, that's a good one. Tony, it's Hi. very good to have you here on the podcast. Something yeah, different. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. Um, to be here. Absolutely. And really, today is just, it's for you and you to tell us everything about, you know, your book and your life as a prison guard and everything like that. So um, to kick it off, really, I guess the first question for me would be, why or what made you join the prison service? Right. So initially, um my father was a prison officer and um, my father was in the army and then he left the army in 1977 joined the scottish prison service he was based at perth um the time i thought about joining i was actually a self-employed hairdresser and i was looking for someone with more in it more something more more grit as i would say <laughs> um it was kind of i was stood behind a chair asking people how they were talking to their mirror so I needed something more. I was married at the time. I had a young child. And I thought, well, if I'm off, we don't get paid. <laughs> so I thought, right, I need something that's that's going to give me a wage and something with a bit of grit about it. So I applied to the Scottish Prison Service and the English Prison Service. Now, I passed for the Scottish Prison Service and I also passed for the English Prison Service, but the English prison service were offering more money. I thought, do you know what? If I'm going to change my life, let, let's change it big time. So I moved to England and I moved to my first prison, which, which was HMP Whitemore, which is a category of prison down in Cambridgeshire. So I went there in February 1995. Wow. wow. And then, so, oh, sorry, Kate. Oh, no, you go. It's all right. I was just going to say, you mentioned that you you applied for the Scottish and the English. Is the main difference just obviously location or is it a huge difference in if you need to apply for tests or, or do anything like that? Is is there a difference in the two? No, not at all. I mean, when I did the test for the Scottish prison service and I went down to England to take the test for the English prison service, it was exactly the same and I'd already passed the Scottish one. So I knew what was sitting in front of me when I opened the, the oh. test book. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> That's yeah. what you want. <laughs> it was and all like it was all like circle square, circle square, what comes next? It was that kind of thing. It was like a psychometric test. But I'd already passed it, as I say, with the Scottish Prison Service. Oh brilliant. And how did you find it when you first started then? How did you find the job? When I first started, well, I knew a bit about it through my dad, obviously. Um I think it's like anything else. You go into anything with trepidation, but 
I don't know what it was. I didn't seem to. I seemed to just waltz in there. I don't know how, but I did. I thought, well, this is, you know, this is my job for the next however long, you know. I never gave it much thought um, as to how people would say how scary it is or anything like that. I just didn't think. I just thought, right, this is a job for me. This is what I'm going to do. Was there some quite scary characters that you came like came across within your career? Like, did you meet any quite infamous people? Oh yes, uh, plenty <laughs> of them. Plenty. Do you want Do you want to talk about any of them? Um, I can do. I mean, I worked with well a couple of main serial killers from the UK. Uh, I worked with Dennis Nielsen at one point. I had him on my landing. I worked wow. with Harold Shipman. And I worked with one big notorious one that's had films made about him starring Tom Hardy. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And do you, like, when you actually meet them, are they what they kind of seem in the press and they seem in all these kind of even things that we do, like crime podcasts, or are they actually completely different? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, when you're doing a, the, a job, like being a prison officer, you tend to treat just everyone the same. It doesn't matter if they think they've got celebrity status or other people have given them celebrity status, it's just a case of getting on with your job. And you don't really think about it as, oh, he's been in the papers, he's been this, because you work with so many different people. I've worked with thousands of prisoners in my time, and I haven't treated anyone any differently from anyone else, you know. Mm-hmm. They're committed yeah. by the courts to serve a sentence, and our job is to make sure that, A, they don't escape, be that they're safe where they are, because you have to you have to do a bit of that. It, the easiest way to describe it is that you're a how could I put it? You're an agony aunt or an agony uncle, depending on which sex you're working in the jail. You're a social worker. You're a prison officer. You've got so many heads on. Mm. But as far as famous people are concerned, we, we don't class them as famous. They're just people mm. that are are in prison. You know, and you have to treat everyone the same. No, definitely. And see, when you said they're like an agony aunt, that's an agony aunt. Oh, that's really interesting. Like, did any of the prisoners' stories actually like really affect you? Well, not so much affect, but there was one prisoner that we had, and and I kind of thought, hmm, there, but for the grace of God, go I. This guy um, had been in a pub with his wife, and during the evening. A bloke kept hassling his wife and he kind of, you know, held it back, held it back, held it back, held it back for so long. Then all of a sudden he snapped because the guy came back and he was obviously hassling his wife. So he hit the guy in a pub and the guy went flying, smashed his head off a table and died. Now, that could happen to anyone, couldn't it? Let, yeah. Let's face yeah. it. You know, you're getting hassled, 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 and he held his calm, held his calm, held his calm for so long, and eventually just that one thing, and he snapped. And as a result of it, the person that was hassling him died. Mm-hmm. So he ended up in prison for manslaughter. Yeah, this guy had never been in trouble in his life, ever. Um, he had a clean record, there was nothing, he'd never done anything wrong. And you kind of think, oh, dear, that could that could happen to me. Mm-hmm. You know. No, absolutely. And I take it he got quite a long time. Oh, yeah. Well, he got quite a few years, let's put it that way. 
Wow, it was manslaughter is, he got done for. You know, for such a simple, I know it's I know it's somebody's life, but for such a quick mistake, that's his life yeah. then ruined as well. Yeah, I mean, he took it must have taken some nerve to hold back as long as he did. And with that, so was that quite not common, but would you say that happened quite a lot? There was a few prisoners like that, or was there kind of like a set thing that people were in for, or was it very varied? Well, every uh, sent every prisoner that we had that got sentenced wasn't uh, sentenced for the same thing. There was that many varying uh, crimes, and when you work in a prison, I mean, say you deal with thousands of prisoners, there's that many varying crimes uh, committed by each individual. You know, it's just manslaughter was one, murder was one, drug importation was one, you know, that kind of thing. So there was all different things that different people had done. Absolutely. And then with that, because obviously you've worked in various prisons and, and there's loads of different crimes and every sentence is different, would you say, you looking at them and dealing with them that you could maybe pinpoint like there's a main cause of crime or there's a main cause of why these people are in here would it be like social backgrounds or again is that completely varied it is varied I mean there's there is social background side to it there's also peer pressure from friends there's also some people that think they're going to jail as a badge of honour there's there's varying things um to some of it's a some people it's a thrill some of it it's in built that it's in them you know you they're all different it's it's hard to gauge each individual person and how they committed their crime and why you know mm. yeah yes, absolutely no i can imagine it being like we've obviously covered some cases in scotland and i think a lot of them feature somebody going to jail and it's always really interesting how they kind of feel towards going to jail and um, our most recent one the guy went, i don't know if you've listened to it, but the guy went to jail and he actually got out and completely like started a new life so do you think rehabilitation in prisons is possible or do you think it's not possible for everyone it is possible now it isn't possible for everyone but there are success stories from prisoners that have uh, been inside and then come out and manage to rebuild their lives. Some of them want to change. Some of them don't want to change. There are success stories as well as failures, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have, like, did you have a lot of, like, repeat offenders? Was there people that you saw coming back quite regularly or...? There has been over the over the years, yeah. I mean, when I worked at... Um, a category C prison in Cumbria, we often had people who were released and not long after they were back in again. So you interesting, know. isn't it? Why people would kind of end up that way. Do you know what I mean? Some people become institutionalised. Um, they've maybe not got anything really to go outside to. So to commit a crime and get three meals a day and warmth and a bed, to some of them, that's the way yeah. they live. And especially the kind of situation our country's in now, it's probably actually a better option for a lot of people that can't afford, you know? Yeah, I could understand that as well. <laughs> Which is wild to um, think. You know, as I say, they get three square meals a day. Um, they've got a bed, they've got a roof over their head, they're warm, they're comfortable to, to a degree anyway. 
yeah no um okay let's get into the the juicy stuff i think here what is some of the worst things you saw when you were in prison right one <laughs> i've been the, looking forward to asking you this one of the worst things i saw was two weeks after i started now this is one of the worst things that i saw it's not there's quite a few bad things that i saw but one of the worst ones is i i was escorting a prisoner down to a gymnasium now it depends on what category a person is um they have to be escorted so this guy was a high risk category a so i was taking him down to gymnasium to come in dropped him off just as i turned i heard this almighty scream and a clang this is explained in the book as well um what the what had happened was one prisoner had taken a dumbbell while this guy was bench pressing and smashed him over the head with it it is the first time i've seen a skull without being on a skeleton in a school if you know what i mean but it's the first yeah, time i've yeah. seen someone's skull because the top of the dumbbell uh, hit the top of his head and it took part of his scalp off obviously and all i saw after that was just a a, a waterfall of red Oh my god. That gosh. was in my first two weeks. And that was two weeks. And you stayed there for such a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I've got the stomach. I always had the stomach for things I mean it it's just one of these things that you knew it could happen, you know. And so how long how many years did you work in the prison service? Sixteen and a half well, just over sixteen and a half years I worked in the prison service. Wow. And that's one of your first stories from two weeks. So you must have tons, which I guess brings us to the complete reason why you could and can write a book about it. And you have. Yeah. Um, so do you want to, shall we begin, maybe if you tell us what made you write the book? Um, and then obviously we can go on and, and you can tell us some extracts, read some things from the book, and then we can listen to some more stories. I will do, yeah. I mean, the the reason, well, one of the catalysts for me writing the book was actually my partner's father, who's a guy called James McDonald. Now, he's just written a book called What's the Worst That Could Happen and had it published, and it's doing very well. Um, it's quite a story. I thought, well, James has got, Jim's got a story to tell. So have I. I thought, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to get this down on paper at some point. Now, not long after this, so it was only a few weeks ago, um, I saw a documentary on my old uh, prison, which was HMP Franklin up in the Northeast. Now, the documentary itself was called Inside Monster Mansion. And what they did, and I thought was wrong in my eyes, was they had five, basically five prisoners telling their story and one prison officer. So it showed an imbalance about the place. I mean, one guy described the, the staff as the Geordie Mafia, and that kind of incensed me. I, it was a prisoner that, that described that. He says, oh, it was the Geordie Mafia, and they were game for this, and they were game for that. And I wanted to put the record straight. I thought, I'm not having this, because that is not the case. The staff at Franklin were some of the most professional people I ever worked with. And because of this... Um, documentary i thought right i'm gonna write my side of that job so that people don't get blinkered into thinking that oh it's all this and it's all that from a prisoner's point of view i wanted to write it from a staff member's point of view i've said to people before you don't want my eyes 
you don't want to see some of the things I've seen. So that was the catalyst for writing the book was a, as I say, a Jim, my partner's father, writing the book about his life. And I thought, you know, I've got something to write. And then that documentary made me definitely do it. So all the ideas were there in my head already. I just needed to type them. Yeah, and I think that's a really good side for people to kind of see it as, because as you said, you hear about people going out of prison, but you actually don't really hear much from prison officers or you kind of watch prison officers in TV shows, and it's probably very fabricated, a lot of it. Yeah, a documentary will never show you what we went through, that you'll see documentaries on the TV where you'll see staff just unlocking doors and the odd fight and everything. They don't, the, the outside world, it's four walls that you don't see into very often, and they are very doctored, these documentaries. Now, as I say, I wanted to put it from my perspective through what I saw. No, definitely. And do you think then this job's like completely altered you as a person? It did for a while. Uh, I will say this, and a lot of other prison officers will say this, you become emotionless. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that I was a horrible person or anything like that. Yeah, but yeah. your emotions change. Nothing scares you. Uh, I mean, I saw a lot in 16 and a half years, and it took me over six years to get my emotions back. And I'm not joking, before I actually started to kind of and feel anything. Now, that might sound horrible, but the way the job is, you just become hardened to everything. You see things. And it just doesn't bother you, you just get on with it. While you were being a prison officer, did that affect your life at that time, like your personal life? Like obviously the whole being emotionless, that must have been really difficult if you had a wife and a child. Yeah. I Well, by the time my marriage started to deteriorate, I had two children. Um, I think a lot of, I would say, marriages break down in that job is due to the stress of the person themselves, the officer. The lack of understanding of what you go through doesn't help either because no one really knows because they don't see what you're doing every day. Like I said to you, it's four walls that you don't see inside. So they don't see what we see. You don't feel what we feel. Um, now, some officers go through this silently and don't say anything, and others do. Uh, it comes out of them easier. I mean, for any incident that happens, you are offered counselling, but a lot of staff wouldn't take the counselling because of bravado, a lot of it. Uh, not all of it, but a lot of it. And the statistic at the point that my marriage broke, I think the police were one in three and we were one in two marriage breakups at that time. Wow. Which is actually a really sad, but I can understand how that then makes sense after you explaining it. I always think it's really sad when you hear about prison officers or policemen, like their relationship breaking down, but it makes total sense the way you've just described that. It must yeah. be so difficult for both sides, yeah. being the person on the outside as well. Like, How do you help somebody like that when you don't have a clue what's going on? Yeah, and you, can, you can't talk about it because it's, it's like, a, it's, I wouldn't say it's a secret society, but you don't want to tell your partner. There's, there's a, an incident that happened to me, which is in my book, which my ex-wife and my kids didn't know about till this book comes out. Wow. And did you just never feel that like you could tell them? I didn't want to put uh, the fear of God into them. Mm -hmm. 
it's all explained and it unfortunately it started off from a what I call a bent screw, which was a an officer that I worked with. Um he passed on information to a prisoner basically about where I lived because I didn't get on with the prisoner at all really and he, he passed on details of where I lived, what car I drove, where my child went to school, things like that and my children didn't even know about this. I sent them an edited, an unedited, sorry, copy of my book and they didn't know any of that. They didn't know that you know, it could have been a threat to my son, a threat to my ex-wife, could have been a threat to anyone that, that was family, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I can't imagine the pressure that was on you as well, mm. like actually not wanting to tell them, but also trying to protect them. Was that like, were bent screws, were they quite common? Like, obviously you watch all these shows and there's always like the show about the bent prison officer and blah, blah. But is that actually quite common for them to do things like that? It's not common, but every prison has one. And... Uh... I would say if they are, it's pretty uncommon that they haven't. There was always somebody or more that, you know, went over the line. I, I wouldn't, I had a line and that was it. You couldn't cross my line, but some people's lines are thinner. Did you find it difficult working with people like that and you knew they were kind of doing things they shouldn't do? Well, this person uh, I've spoke about and it's on the book, I would never have suspected. Really? Mm -hmm. Why do you think they do it? Do you think it's? Do you think they need something? Some people or... think that the prison service isn't enough money for them. I mean, grad, we all know any job, you say, oh, it's not enough money. But uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, put other people's lives at risk by doing what they do in prisons because this piece of information was written down on a piece of paper and handed to a prisoner from a colleague of mine. Which they could easily have got caught. And actually, yeah, like that's Eventually just... the person got caught. It's all in the book. Um, oh, brilliant. Eventually. Yeah. Okay. Right. But... Was there a reason that... Did, did you have a disagreement or something? I know it's in the book, so obviously don't tell us the whole story because there if was... you want to know it, you'll need to read it. But, like, well, there is reason? a bit of that, but no, there was no, between me and my colleague, didn't see a problem. I worked with him, he was on the same landing as me. It's just didn't, crazy. Didn't he prob yeah, them, probably just unfortunate whatsoever. See, you just following on from people you worked with, Tony, I'd obviously read one of the passages from your book, and you'd mentioned a woman, a woman prison officer, sorry, going, out, going on to date an uh, ex-prisoner. Is yeah. that common as well, or is that actually quite rear because I think you hear about that as well but I, was, I actually didn't believe that happened. It does happen I mean um, th there has been prisoner staff relationships why they do it I do not know I mean I wouldn't risk a job for someone that say a lifer who's never going to get out of prison what is the point of starting a relationship with someone like that um, so yeah it does happen I think at Whitemore I think there was about eight females in the space of a couple of years they were actually caught having relationships with prisoners. And, like, what do they expect is going to happen? Like, do, do they think they're actually not going to get caught? Or, like, as you say, with the people that are in for their, like, full life sentence, like, do, do you know any understanding of why they do it? I think in some cases, no. Um, some prisoners are charming. <laughs> There's no two doubts about that. 
a lot of them abused charm and ended up in prison because of it. Um, so I think some of them fall for the charm of it. I mean, I've never understood it because um, I'm not that way. You know, I don't think that way. I just think it's a job. I've got a job. I don't want to lose it. And I certainly wouldn't lose it over a prisoner. But some people just don't think that, oh, I'm not going to get caught. They'll never find out. And I take it they most of the time do get found out. But this one you speak about in your book, like, had they actually been out of prison and then went on to just, like, have a relationship on the outside with them? Yeah, the person I saw uh, was a colleague I used to work with and they were both out hand in hand in the shopping centre. Did they see you? No. <laughs> I was going to say, I would be so scared. I'd then be like, well, I've been caught. But obviously, if they're out hand in hand, they're not really... Face. Can they get in trouble with that then? Like, if the prisoner's out of prison, is that still, could they get in trouble? Well, the person got sacked, so um, they're not in the job yeah. anymore. So I suppose <laughs> it's carry on life as normal. You know, whatever normal crazy, is. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I just can't imagine that at all. Like, how you'd even kind of get to the stage of finding I know you say they're charming, but how is there not that boundary? I know, and you also wonder back to what I said before about colleagues at traffic and things like that and um, are they giving prisoners info on you again you know like i went through before so it's always that in the back of your mind what have they no, told definitely. people exactly there's no Absolutely. trust there whatsoever um tony can we talk about you joining the riot team yeah and yeah, going sure. through the training how did you find that like did it ever come into play and like what was it like yeah, training was great. I mean, the first time I did the training, because you, you have to refresh yourself as well, but the first time I did it, there was some uh, young kids from the college, and it's like a big mock prison, and they were stood on, like, a gallery above it, and some of the reactions on some of the faces is unbelievable, because what, what you do when you go through right training is it is real. Uh, for instance, I was holding the shield during riot training and somebody was hitting the shield, hitting the shield and hitting the shield with a big piece of wood. Now, until you're told to, like, go forward or whatever, you've got to stand and take that. Uh, they throw all sorts wow. at you. You go through fire, stuff like that. Uh, did it come into play? Yeah, I mean, quite a few times um, when we were called out, um, rooftops were one and we had to be there to, once the prisoner comes down you've got to take him away at the segregation unit and things like that um, we've had barricades where we've had to go in uh, obviously in riot gear stuff like that I mean usually when a prisoner barricade it's not always well it's not always one person there could be four or five in there and you've got to get them out so you go in and do whatever you know you need to do to get them out of that cell because they don't always come out with their hands up in the air they come out fighting and with that and things that i know that you touch on in the book as well that obviously your your dad was a big part in the way that you went into uh, becoming a prison officer yeah. so he played you mentioned that he played a part is it peterborough yeah peterhead 
Peterhead, sorry. Do you want to, are you happy to go on and tell us about that? And Yeah, I will read you an excerpt from the book. Now, the book is dedicated to my father. Unfortunately, my father passed away in February this year. Um, I say it was a big influence in my life and certainly a big influence in me joining this job. Um, I will read you an excerpt about my dad and this will just show you what kind of guy he was. So Thank you. Part of my book is, Dad worked at Perth Prison back then. The Scottish prisons were starting to become powder kegs and Dad would play an intrinsic part in the following years. In the 80s, Scottish prisons erupted. The worst was the Peterhead disturbances. Dad was sent there as part of the riot team. When they all mustered, it was noticeable that they had no hostage negotiator, bearing in mind they had an officer hostage up on the roof. A prison psychologist who knew my dad said, Les is the man to do this, Les my father. Dad had never negotiated, but his way of dealing with things calmly and professionally put him right on the front line, facing some of the most dangerous, hardened prisoners in Scotland. Dad neg negotiated from below the roof skylight. He had a helmet for protection, and that was it. One of the prisoners was dousing my father with lighter fluid. Dad did not budge. He stood like a rock, despite the threats to set him alight. That's the kind of guy my dad was. Wow, which is, is just mad, isn't it? The guy was up on the roof as my dad was negotiating, as I say. He was dousing my dad with lighter fluid, threatening to set him up. And he carried on, he just kept carried going. Carried on with his and... job. Wow. And I take it, obviously, your dad played a huge part in that. And it was it successful? And did he ever get like an honour for doing things like that? Or nope. is that just part of the job? My dad didn't get any honours for it. I mean, a lot of Scottish prison officers from the past will know my dad through what he did. My dad was one that ended up being one of the top negotiators in Scotland. Um, so he didn't just carry on. Uh, he, sorry, he carried on from Peterhead, and I think a couple of days later, they had his mate up on the roof in Perth, and my dad had to negotiate that as well. It was just non-stop for him at one point due to the prisons being the way they are. What an exhausting wow. sounding job, though, isn't it? Like, yeah, I know we I all have our it. tough days at jobs, like at work, but that's just, like, mentally and physically exhausting. Yeah. And my dad oh. did it. Absolutely. Your dad, like, he sounds like an incredible man and yeah. he must have some stories and he must have told you some amazing stories as well. Um, and especially because, well, you became part of the riot team and so that influenced you big time, I would say. Um, and you touch on, do you, you touch more about that in your book, don't you? Yeah, I touched on quite a lot of things in the, the book. <laughs> There's quite a lot of subjects in that book that people can read you know and get an understanding of we actually, what we actually went through mm -hmm. and with so. that because you've got you've got so many different stories and you were in various prisons was it at least four you worked in no I worked in three I worked three. in three I was 1995 to 1999 I worked at HMP Whitemore which was a category of prison in Cambridgeshire 1999 to 2006 I worked in HMP Franklin, which is a Category A prison just in the outskirts of Durham. 
And then in 2006 to 2011, I worked at HMP Havrig in Cumbria. So very kind of varied and definitely loads of different things that happened. And with that, obviously, you've written a book. And would you ever go back to the prison service? Would that be something that you'd be interested in? Or would you promote it to other people, whether they're young and they're starting out a career or you know anybody would you would you promote i think the easiest way for me to describe is to read my book and see what i've seen and see if you you could do it or you would do it um yeah i mean no i wouldn't go back i mean i'm 56 years old now and i don't fancy rolling about on landings till i'm 60 odd which i mean the presence don't get me wrong there's still plenty goes on in them uh, even since my day so I don't really think that I'd like to be rolling about at 58 59 60 years old if you know what I mean so no I mean I've I've seen quite a bit I've been through quite a bit and you've served your time you've done uh, it <laughs> yeah but well you are doing time as well as they are absolutely because when you're on duty that's such an interesting perspective yeah when you're on duty you can't just walk off when you feel like it you can't just say oh my way out i fancy going shopping you can't just take time out you are on duty and you are there um there was all different shifts i mean an a shift was a 12 hour shift a main shift was like eight hours an early shift was like say five hours so for all that time that you're on them shifts you were in that prison dealing with whatever i mean i've dealt with some uh <laughs> weird and wonderful things and weird and wonderful people i have an excerpt from my book um about a prisoner that tried to take revenge on me it's only a small excerpt but i have got one so if you'd like me to Would you read be happy it, to read it absolutely yeah, well, please do yeah obviously in prisons prisoners will wage war on you if they don't get on with you now, part of the excerpt here I'll read to you now. I put, not the only prisoner to wage a war with me. There were a few, but one bad one was a Filipino prisoner. This guy had previously sharpened toilet brushes. Now, they are deadly. Hard plastic, sharpened to a point, scary weapons. I placed them on report, which is like a governor's report under prison rules, for disrespect. He decided to get his own back on me. I was doing locks, bolts and bars, which is a check that you do where you check bars, doors, locks, everything in each cell. The prisoner clocked me doing this. I remember it. It was absolutely roasting that day. On knowing we tapped the bars, the prisoner smeared jam on the outside of the bars. When I tapped them, around 30 wasps flew into the cell straight at me. He'd done it deliberately just to get me stung. Luckily, I didn't. That is crazy. You'd never think that you're going to no. put jam on the bars for all There's things. the word think. Yeah. They're sitting there 24-7 thinking of things, thinking of ways to get one over you. It's like a game. So that one was, was a hot summer. And I had placed the prisoner on report. And he smeared jam at the 
on the outside of the bars. So it goes out, his window looked out onto an excise yard. So he, he smeared them behind the bars, not on the bars on the inside. And he he put jam on them. There was also a pot of jam sitting out there, I found out later. And all these wasps just flew in at me. There was loads of them. I reckon about 30. Wow. That is crazy. And all that just because you did something that he didn't like. Um, yeah, I placed yeah. him on report. Most prisoners get over it. This prisoner decided he wasn't going to. So say before, he'd sharpened up toilet brushes before. Now, you know, they're long white plastic hand of a toilet brush yeah taking the top off them and somehow managed to sharpen them so they're really hard hard plastic they would have gone right through you wow and did did anything ever come of that or would that be something that you guys you would hope to find before anything happened and you'd obviously confiscate it or would it be too late you would only know once something bad had happened well i tried I, I was a specialist searcher later on in my career. I always worked proactively. I tried to find things before they were used. Can't always do it, but I tried my best to be proactive in that job. I ended up being a specialist searcher. So I even showed weapons on BBC Northwest tonight about that. It was 2008. I showed weapons that we'd found at HMP Havrick on, well, on BBC television. Wow. wow. And what what type of weapons were they? Like oh, so you've got your um you've toilet brush and things, but were these physical weapons or homemade weapons, would you call them? Well, basically prison made weapons. There's various ways they'll make them. Uh one of them was the old favourite was a toothbrush and they used to double blade. They they get the uh, bristles off a toothbrush, melt two razor blades into the toothbrush, one at each side. And then when they strike you with it, you can't sew it back together because the wound's too far, if you know what I mean. So it's like double bladed. Mm -hmm. So you can't really sew it up very well. So they end up with a permanent scar. Wow. That's a lot of think about, isn't about it? weapons. There's, there's some weird and wonderful things that they make. <laughs> Speaking of reading the book, Tony, it's obviously called Prison Walls to Waterfalls. Why yeah. is it called that? It tells you in the book, um, it basically, the end of the book will explain why the waterfalls comes in. Okay, I like that. Very suspicious. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're drawing, you're drawing us in. I know, I'm like, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Tony, is there a final part from your book you want to read to us? Or have you read everything you kind of want to say without people going on and reading the full book? I think people need to read the book. And I, I would say even people that um, I've, I've even considered doing the job. Now, reading the book is not there to put them off. It's just there to show them what I saw. I mean, mm -hmm. people can go throughout the whole career and not see half the things I saw in 16 and a half years, even a third of the things. But it's just there to so that people can see what I saw. As I say, as I said earlier, you, you really don't want my eyes at times because of what I've seen, you know. No, definitely. It's a bit of a controversial one, but would you recommend someone that served time reads it? Eh... Yeah, well, yeah, I don't, I don't mind who reads the book. Um, somebody might actually 
that's been inside might see how it was for us, if you know what I mean. It, I would say, yes, have a read of it. I mean, I, I was a very fair prison officer, and there's bits in the book that show you that, um, the way I've dealt with some things. Some people will never accept you if they're inside. To some prisoners, you are a policeman inside there, even though you're not. Mm-hmm. You're a prison officer. You're not a policeman. But some people see you as you wear black and white, which we did at the time, like a white shirt, black epaulets, black trousers. They see you as the law, and it's not the case. But some people just will never see beyond that. So reading my book, they might think, oh, look what Mr. Duncan saw. You know, Absolutely. And what yeah, he went no, they might actually, yeah, they might actually see it in a complete different light. Yeah. And before we end this and things, so you've got you've got a hardback cover book that you can buy. Yeah. Um, you yeah. also have a Kindle version That's that right. you can buy, which we'll put the links in everywhere too. I also yeah. saw just a note, it's also on Kindle Unlimited. Which it is, yeah. It's so brilliant. Read it on Kindle Unlimited, so it's on. It's available on Kindle and on paperback. No, is and that? Hopefully, I could get the link to you for it because it only came out in paperback yesterday, and it's still not showing up on Amazon. But if I, you have the link actually, I think so. Yeah, we can post that. That can get shared. Uh, it's a good read. I'm not not just here to plug my book. I'm here to tell you about what I've been through as I've done. Um, the book's available five ninety nine. Kindle, it's available five ninety nine, and Kindle Unlimited. I wasn't in this at any point to make money. It was to get my story across. The book is for my dad. I wrote this and dedicated it to my dad. Well, yeah, thank of you course. very much, Tony. No yeah. problem. Thank you. And everybody, after that, if you could go and read the book, there'll be some fantastic stories in there if Tony hasn't already piqued your interest. So thank you very much. Hey, thank you. As I say, the book's called Prison Walls to Waterfalls and there is a reason why the waterfall's in it. <laughs>